Father in heaven, again we come to you at the beginning of this class, grateful for the opportunity to serve, but also challenged that the opportunity provides um, a great need on our part to know exactly what you have in mind for us, what you want us to do, and how we can do it best for you. This class is intended, Lord, only to be a beginning wedge into that experience. But Lord, we need you more than anything else if we're going to rightly represent you and do the work you've given us to do. Bless our class today with the presence of your Holy Spirit and prepare our hearts for a deeper and greater and better service in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, today we're transitioning from the basic into the advanced part of our elders training. And when I say advanced, that sounds ominous, but it doesn't have to be. It basically means I'm going to go more in depth into some things and a little broader, not just giving you some uh, a summary of job descriptions for an elder, but to talk about some of those things that elders do and give you hopefully a chance to ask some questions about some of those things. In the next couple of days, we'll deal with some problem areas and, and the challenges that you uh, have to deal with in your church. Uh, some of those challenges that you have to deal with, I, that uh, sheet is, needs to come back up here um, and get up here because there's some people that haven't signed in for that yet. Uh, and, you know, that some of the most difficult problems that elders face and churches face have to do with disciplinary type circumstances, problems that arise in your church of unfaithfulness uh, to theology, unfaithfulness to spouses, uh, conflicts that come up in your church. They can absorb you and destroy you um, in terms of trying to make it so that the church is doing everything uh, about that and not about what you're looking for. So those can be some really challenging opportunities and uh, we want to talk a little bit about that. So I'm assuming you're coming in for the elders class and you're in the absolute right, right place. So I just want to make sure <laughs> there's a couple classes around here and people sometimes get confused. So we have some notes coming in just a moment. My secretary is making a few extra copies and she'll bring them in and everybody will be together. But we're going to work off the screen today. And here's what I'm going to focus in on mainly today. We're going to talk about some of the special services that uh, elders might be called upon to participate in or to lead out in. And I'm also going to tell you what you can do and what you can't do. So that that part of it is clear to you, because sometimes I get calls from the field and they're saying, can an elder do this and can an elder do that? And so we want to work through that part of it and, and make sure that part of it's clear to you today. So we're going to start, first of all, with baptism. Uh, perhaps most important thing the church does is bring people into the church. And nothing more valuable to your personal experience and to the experience of your church members than to be involved in bringing people to Jesus. 
If you're not involved in doing that, I really, really, really want to encourage you to get down on your knees and say, Lord, how do I do this? How do I fit this in my schedule? How do I make this a priority? Because as I said yesterday, you're a disciple before you are an elder. And you should be a disciple before you are an elder. And you should not be an elder if you are not a disciple. I hope you understand what I mean by that. And that is that you have been called to be a Christian before you're called to be an elder. There's nothing worse than an elder who's not a Christian. You all are looking at me with blank stares. I hope you're all still here. You understand what I mean by that, right? Now I'm talking to the choir because I realize that... um, This is the kind of situation. People who come to camp meeting are like people who come to prayer meeting. Do you know what Ellen White says about prayer meeting? We'll talk about that in a a moment. But um, people who come to camp meeting are coming here because they're motivated. Many of you take your vacation time to come to camp meeting. You want to sit at the feet of Jesus. You want to learn more about him. People don't do that if they're not Christians. But I'm also wise enough to know, as a gospel minister, to know that sometimes we put on a facade. Sometimes we're wearing a mask. And we have to take evaluation of ourselves sometimes. And that's the work of the Spirit of God. You read in John and you see what Jesus said about the work of the Holy Spirit. And the work of the Holy Spirit is to get it get to our hearts and help us to look and see what is in that heart of ours. And if there's what shouldn't be there or we're not in the relationship that Jesus wants us to be, he wants to change that. So this is a call to a reminder of that. So be a disciple. But because you are disciples, you are winning souls and you are leading people to Jesus. And because you're leading people to Jesus, you want them to be part of your church. This is the remnant church. This is the church that exists just before Jesus comes back. And and this is the one that fulfills the prophecies in Revelation. This is the church that God said would go through to the kingdom of heaven. But it's also the Revelation 3 church that is called Laodicea. And the Laodicean church does have to be reformed. But when people come to the church, they should be baptized. All right, let's talk a little bit about that. That was a little back from from yesterday and, and some of that. But let's talk about baptism for a moment. When was the last time you had a... Anybody have a baptism in your church in the last year? Good, good. I'm glad. I'm glad also to see the one hand that was down come back up. (laughs) All right, so you've had baptisms in your church. When was the last time you did a baptism? Can I see your hands? That's good too. All right, let's talk a little bit about that. Part of the work of an elder is to participate in the process of preparing people for baptism. And I'm going to tell you honestly, to be perfectly frank, Sometimes we pastors do not do a good job of involving our elders in this process. And if that's the case, we need to grow too. 
We're busy people out there as pastors and we get going running down that track and we go from home to home and visiting and we are doing Bible studies and we're running to the hospital and preparing sermons and you know, trying to get the agenda ready for the board meetings and, and prayer meeting and yada, yada, yada. And sometimes we don't take the time to pause and realize that the elders need to be involved in that process, number one. Number two, that the elders can be trained to actually lead out in that process and take the pressure off of us, and that's a lot of what should be happening. Recognize that if you go back and simply say, Pastor, Elder Snayman said, you've got to let me do this, you use the wrong language. <laughs> you can go back and say, Elder Snayman encouraged uh, in us to learn how to develop some skills in this area, and I would like to be able to learn to do that. Are you willing to help me to do that? You notice what you're asking, because that actually gives the pastor the opportunity to say, no, I'm not willing. That's when you call me, <laughs> because I will encourage the pastor to be willing and to find out what it is that would be a stumbling block from the pastor being willing to do that. But elders should help in the organizing and the directing and giving support throughout that service. If you don't even know the service is coming, how can you do that? But I got a response from, I think, most of you that you're having elders meetings and that you're meeting with your pastors and, and doing so on a fairly regular basis. The pastor and you should be talking about, do you have baptisms coming up? And if you have those baptisms coming up, what do you need to do to prepare for that? How can we help in that process? So the organization, the directing, the giving of support throughout that service. Ordained pastors do the baptism. All right? Now there, I immediately saw some hands come up on that. And I'm going to just say it again. Ordained pastors do the baptism. But there is a phrase at the end, and what is it? Except under certain conditions. Well, first of all, be careful of your theology, <laughs> okay? When you take a look at what happened in the New Testament, you find that the people that were doing the baptisms were the apostles and the leaders and the, and the elders and the preachers that were doing that work. And there's a very practical reason when it comes to the work that we do. If everybody just starts baptizing, you're going to have chaos in your church. Stop and think about it for a moment. If all of a sudden you have people that start baptizing and anybody and, any, anybody and everybody is authorized to baptize, who's going to be making sure that good work is done in preparing those people for baptism? There's... There seems to be kind of this movement of lowering that, and I believe it's dangerous. And the church manual is very clear on this, and you and I are Seventh-day Adventist elders, not Baptist elders. And we're not um, Methodist elders or whatever. We are Seventh-day Adventist elders, and the church manual lays that out for us because of the the danger that's there of us simply falling into to a chaotic practice. By us working together, we maintain the strength of the church. If we don't do it, we begin to bring in the weakness of the church. And, you know, we, you already have enough problem with a mixed multitude in the world today, don't you? In the church, I should say. 
And not everybody who, you know, somebody starts baptizing. I mean, you, I just can't even imagine what would happen if that started happening in the church. Now, I don't know why that minister refused to baptize your parents, but there may have been a reason for that. Maybe he didn't like the way they looked, and I can't deal with that part of it. But if there were some practical issues that he was concerned about, if they were still working on Sabbath, if they were, were smoking, or, or there were other issues that they hadn't, and I don't want to get into that discussion today because that's a whole other issue. I'm just said if. That pastor was carrying out what that pastor should have done. Those people, everybody should have a basic preparation for baptism, and that's part of the training that you need in order to be able to accomplish that work. And I, want, I would like to see you trained to know how to clear people for baptism. And that means knowing what they need to know and also knowing when they're not ready so that you don't baptize them too early and create a problem for you and for your church and for them. Now, part of the problem is that... Um, Bob, would you mind making sure that everybody has one of, the, one of these sets because I know there were some that were short. <laughs> Uh, I know that there are there are times when some of our pastors hold a stronger line in relationship to some things, and there's some of our pastors who have a more relaxed standard in relationship to some things, and and there there are some of those little nuances back and forth. Some people, some pastors, and and I'm making a point. I don't want to overstate it. And I don't want to offend anybody and, and any of our pastors, regardless, because I'm not speaking of anybody in particular, but some of our pastors and some of our places in the world expect people to be saints before they're baptized. And, and that, that's not going to happen. That shouldn't happen. All right? But some pastors are anxious to baptize people and are willing to let some things slide that shouldn't slide in preparation for baptism and making those decisions. And we have to find that balance and sort that out, and God's got to help us with that process. But nonetheless, there needs to be a standard that is identified there. And why is the ordained pastor doing that? Because the ordained pastor is the one who's been appointed by the conference and, and the union, because ordination go for gospel ministry goes through at the union level, and these individuals are people who have been trained and co committed and, and I, I want to say vetted. You understand what that word means? That uh, they are the individuals who have uh, proven themselves in ministry. That's why they are ordained. And they're the ones that God has appointed to that particular work through the uh, work of the church. And I recognize that, yeah, anyway, I don't want to get too far down into that. And I hope this helps some. But just stop and think, even of the practical application of this, if everybody started baptizing. Did I tell you, I told the story once, and I'm trying to remember where I told it in the sequence. Did I tell you about the lady who came to our church and uh, who uh, was, I was teaching, she was teaching about education and then she started doing some strange things. Did I tell you about that lady? Okay, I'll tell you about that. I think it was the deaconesses and deacons and deaconesses I told about this. The church, um, the church where I was pastoring a lot of years ago, 
had a, had a small school there, and they wanted to explore some other issues in relationship to Christian education. And uh, I was a young pastor in those days, and I did something I, I regretted, and that is I did not check with the conference before I brought this lady in or allowed this lady to come in. That that's should be a warning to all of us. Because you want to know who's coming in. You want to have some idea who it is. Now, the conference may not have known who this lady was, and they might have said, well, it's fine to, to bring her in, but I still should have done that. It was a lady who was uh, working with an independent ministry, and she had a very um, Seventh-day Adventist ministry, and she had a very strong passion for Christian education. And some people had, in the church had gotten acquainted with her and wanted to come and share some of their feelings about Christian education. And so they, um, they uh, brought her, we brought her in, and she did her, uh, her presentations, and they were okay. Uh, they weren't earth-shattering and changing, but she had some interesting ideas, and, and pretty soon she went home, and we went on with life and ministry. But about a year later, people said to me, they wanted, are you short on stuff, Bob? Uh, they got some extra sugar. Okay, all right. I just went through making sure they're all there. Good, thanks. Uh, she, um, I, I got word that she was uh, planning to come back. Well, I didn't know anything about that, and I hadn't invited her. And, but they were asking, some of the church members were saying, can she come back and come to the church? Well, you know, at that point I had some little bit of misgivings, and then I really got some misgivings when they started telling me, now, Pastor, I want you to know, we've heard that she believes the Adventist church is Babylon. And so I got on the phone and I called her and, and I said, uh, you know, this is what I've heard. Is this true? And she told me to her credit that, yes, she did feel that the Adventist church was Babylon. I said, well, you know, I can't bring you to uh, the church here and, and I'm not inviting you. And, and unfortunately, you're not welcome to come to the Seventh-day Adventist church. And in response to that, she handled that fairly graciously, but some of the church members who had built this relationship with her decided that they were going to do it on, her own, on their own, and so they brought her, them to, uh, brought her to their home and started having these meetings. And it wasn't long before I heard that this was going on and that this lady was now unbaptizing them, that's my term, okay, unbaptizing them from the Babylonian church that they had joined and now baptizing them in the pure name of Jesus Christ. Well, you can see where that chaos and that kind of situation begins to come in in that. It was a very sad situation because she took several members out of the church as a result of that. They left the church never to return. The lady who actually held those meetings at her church, at her home, it was years later that she finally came back to the Seventh-day Adventist church and rejoined the church, and I praise the Lord for that. But there were others who never did come back. And, um, and, and that lady actually served and helped the conference for a number of years in a, a leadership capacity in the Michigan conference, not, as, not in the conference office, but in, in a, some entity within our, our conference here. And I was always grateful to see her and always remembered that experience. But you, you are a lot of people that will do that today, and, and there are safeguards there. If you want to talk to me more about that, I'll be happy to talk to you more later, but I'm going to keep going, but I hope that gives you at least a little bit of a perspective. Let's talk a little bit about baptisms. Baptisms takes place indoors and outdoors. 
And another thing that I would uh, add here is we have a portable baptistry. So if you have a, a small, you're part of a small church that doesn't have a baptistry, and we have a few around the Michigan Conference, that there is a portable baptistry that's available, and you can schedule it by calling the conference office, and it's scheduled through the Treasury Department. And you can talk to them, and they can help you with that process. And there are other places where that can be done as well. By the way, ordained pastors baptize except under certain conditions. The conditions that are provided for in the church manual are the conditions where an, a, a pastor is really not available to come and do that. That's really in other places in the world. There are so many ordained uh, pastors in Michigan, there is not a problem with accomplishing that. I get questions about that from time to time, and most of them come out of Berrien Springs. And they want to know if their elder can baptize somebody because they have a friend that they want to baptize and yada, yada, yada. And I say to myself, isn't that interesting? They want to do that where there are probably more ordained ministers than anywhere on the planet. And they want, to, they want to be able to do that. And our answer to that is no, because we believe that we need to keep that part of it clear. If we were dealing with out in the middle of Africa somewhere and there was a head elder there and there wasn't going to be a pastor for a couple of years coming by, which is a very real possibility in some parts of the world, absolutely, we're not going to wait two years to baptize somebody just to get a pastor to come around. So those are why, that is why those circumstances are provided. But in those cases, that pastor is going to train that elder to be able to do that work and to clear those people and to make sure they're solid Seventh-day Adventists and that he can trust that elder in, in that process. That's part of what has to be done. And that's why an, elder, an ordained minister is doing that because that's what they are, uh, are, are directed to do and accomplish. Okay? Um, Preparation for baptism, uh, a baptism should be announced and should be advertised and people should be invited to come and be a part of that. We are not supportive of the idea of secret baptism. Baptism is a, a process by which it's a testimony. It's a testimony to people. We want people to be there. We want non-Adventists to be there. And, and gratefully, you know, I've, I've got a fellow who wants to be baptized, and, and I've been working with him for several years, and the Lord's been working on his, on his heart, and he's gotten the victory over smoking and, and all of that, and he's looking forward to be ba being baptized. Unfortunately, he's putting his baptism off a little farther than I'm really comfortable with, but his reason is because he wants his family members to be there, and they can't be there except at a certain time a little later in the year. And, uh, and that's a good thing. It's a balance between a good and a bad circumstance. You don't want to put it off forever, but you want to make sure that uh, people are able to be there and be a part of that. There are some exceptions to that. We live in a very strange world today, in a very difficult world. There are some people who, if they make a decision to be baptized, could cost them their lives. Right? And there are times when somebody being baptized without everybody knowing it is not a bad thing in that kind of situation so that, that the gospel can continue to move in, in their lives. But those are very unusual circumstances and not typically the ones that we encounter here. But that doesn't mean it's not impossible that it could be encountered here. 
Uh, deaconesses will need to have the place of the baptism prepared. Uh, naturally in the church, that's a normal process, and most deaconesses have known about that and have been trained to do that. If it's somewhere else, then they need to know what resources are available to them. We have baptisms at Camp Segola in the UP. We have baptism at, baptisms at uh, Camp uh, Asabal. And uh, church leaders uh, sometimes participate in that. I know when I pastored, I've done them in little streams uh, near people's homes and, and so on and so forth. And, uh, and you want the elders, the deacons and deaconesses to be able to participate and make that a good process. Now, I'm not going to go into a lot of details about dressing for the baptism and all. I will make this one observation. When you're wearing robes that are white, do not wear dark things underneath. Okay, especially ladies. You want to encourage them to make sure that they realize that those white robes can be sometimes almost see-through when they get wet. And so you need to recognize that, and that's just a, an observation. All right, I saw a hand, please. What was the name of that place in the UP you mentioned? Camp Sagola. Camp Sagola. We have two camps in the Michigan Conference. Camp Sagola, that's S-A-G-O-L-A. Sagola is uh, um, owned by the Michigan Conference, but it serves mainly the Upper Peninsula co uh, churches. And, uh, and the Camp Asabal serves the whole conference. But Sagola, you know, the UP is a long way from down here, and they have that camp, and it's been a real blessing to, to people up there. Um, obviously, there has to be a place for people to change their clothes and all of that. Here's the part I do want to make sure that does not get lost of in the shuffle. Sometimes we're trying to streamline everything, not to the credit of God's work. Sometimes we want to say, okay, how short can we make these vows? Do you pledge to be a good Seventh-day Adventist? Yes, okay, baptize you. No, I don't think that's a good idea. Because when we are preparing for baptism, the baptism should be a special time and not just an add-on in the church service. And I've made the mistake of doing that and just doing it that way, and, and I encourage people not to do that anymore. I hope I've learned my lesson in that. This is a life-changing moment in the, in the experience of these individuals, and it's the whole reason that we exist. It shouldn't be a tack-on service so that we can get on with all our preliminaries and the sermon, which is the most important part of our church service. You take it in which I meant that, okay? I'm not saying it's not important. Don't misunderstand me. But just not, not make the baptism just a tack on. Let's get it over with as quick as we can. Candidates should be carefully examined and make a confession of their faith. They should, elders should be aware of that confession of, the, of their, their faith and, and that process. That doesn't mean the elders have to be there and witness that. But, um, you know, because sometimes people in some parts of the country, world, no country, world, if a person wants to be baptized, they go through a process that can last up to two years. And, and then those individuals will be brought before the board of elders and they will be carefully examined and almost to the level of a, a person going through a doctoral dissertation uh, defense, if you know what that is. And, and that whole process can be, you know, quite daunting. Uh, we don't need that. That's not what we're talking about. But it, the elders should be part of that process, and the elders should be comfortable with the fact that these people that are being baptized are prepared and, and thoroughly prepared for that. And pastors are trained for that. That's their work. You might 
you know, don't go overboard and start questioning the pastor because Elder Sneeman said that this should happen, but instead recognize that it's good for you to learn about that process. And you might say to your pastor, you know, the next time you're clearing some form, someone for baptism, I would like to come and learn about that experience and, uh, and develop that. And I think that's a good thing. I, I would encourage you to do that and be a part of that. And the pastor should be reporting to the elders at the board of uh, elders meeting about a baptism coming up. And sometimes those baptisms are just before Sabbath because a person's finally made a decision after three years of studying or whatever, and they're ready to be baptized, and there's not always time to take it to the board of elders. But that person should be examined in front of the congregation and be able to see that that's a good thing. And I say examined by asking the questions, and there are 13 of them, yes. On the topic of clearing a person for baptism, um, I had an individual approach me once and asked me what I thought about clearing someone for baptism. His point was, we never used to have the fundamental 27 beliefs, now 28. In clearing a person for baptism, do they need to agree to all 28 and abide by them before baptism? We have basically 13 questions. There's a couple questions built within those there. But when they go through and, and they're examined on those questions, we expect them to be able to answer honestly yes to all those questions. Um, why would I want to be a Seventh-day Adventist if I don't believe what Seventh-day Adventists believe? Why would I want to be a Seventh-day Adventist if, if I don't agree with two out of the 28? Um, my suggestion to a person who is having that kind of a struggle is they're not ready for baptism yet. Uh, that doesn't mean they can continue to grow, they can't come to church, but they do need to respond positively. Now, some of those are, you know, one of those is talking about witnessing and sharing our faith and those kinds of things. And, and it's not quite at the level of the Sabbath versus Sunday type, type level. But I'm going to tell you, if somebody, if somebody says, look, I agree with everything, but the idea of sharing my faith is absolutely out, well, I don't think they're yet ready to be a Christian, let alone a Seventh-day Adventist, because that's what Jesus asks us to do. So I think when we come to those kinds of things, we've got to try to sort out what it is that seems to be the stumbling block in that person's life and prepare them for that so that they're really ready to be a Seventh-day Adventist. When we baptize people that are still smoking, when we baptize people that are um, still working on Sabbath, when we baptize people that are still wearing jewelry, when we baptize, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, we think we're doing good because we're going to give them a chance within the church to be able to grow. Why can't they grow before they become part of the church? They can grow before they come, become a part of the church. And the problem is what usually happens is when they are baptized before they are ready, they come in and they feel they've now arrived. And they stop growing because they didn't, the, they didn't allow the Lord to lead them to, uh, to that particular experience that would, uh, would say, yeah, I agree with these things, and to live that out. And then we've, we've got people that are the mixed multitude in the church. And that's a real danger today. And it's happening more and more and more. And, and the church is getting weaker and weaker because of it. And I, you know, there are some things that we don't expect. You know, we expect people to agree that the Bible teaches that there are clean and unclean foods and that we're not going to eat unclean foods anymore. 
And so if I've got shrimp in my refrigerator and I believe that French is, uh, shrimp's okay to eat and I become a Seventh-day Adventist, I'm really violating that basic principle of the Bible. So we expect them to not do that. Now we also believe that the vegetarian diet is superior to a, uh, of a, a meat-eating diet. But we don't expect them to be uh, vegetarians before they are baptized. There is always that room for growth. Making sense in all of that? So we, we, we start with those basics. The church is a, as a church family has come to an understanding of what uh, those basics are, and that helps to keep us all together on the, on the same plane. Um, and when it comes to baptisms, sometimes uh, a baptism, uh, at, uh, I mean, let me go through this here. They should be carefully examined. They should be officially welcomed in the church. There are times when a person will be uh, accepted into membership, um, or I should say baptized in one place, and taken into membership in another place. So in other words, when you are baptized at Camp Asabel, you're baptized there, and, but you're not taken into membership at Camp Asabel. Okay, because this is a special occasion and this membership is going to be taken to back to the local church like the, the next Sabbath and we're going to welcome this person in. They were just baptized at Camp Asabel and we're welcoming them, uh, welcoming them into the church here. Now that kind of situation happens when a, when a young person goes up to summer camp and they've made arrangements ahead of time and the youth director up there has had a special impact on, on them and he baptizes them and then they go back to their church and the next time, because the, the, the youth director has made arrangements with a, with a pastor back there and pastor now, when that first Sabbath, that young person comes back to church, they say, you know, this young person, uh, Susie Smith, was baptized last uh, week at Camp Asabel and... She's back home now, and we want to welcome her and our church family and take her into officially into a church membership, and you do that in front of all the members because they couldn't be present at that baptism and they weren't invited to that. That's that kind of process that takes place. Quick, quick clarification on the youth camp baptism. Mm -hmm. do, is that candidate cleared by the youth director and also coordinated with the pastors? Are they cleared at camp? Before they come back? The best and the, and the cleanest process is when that individual has been prepared for baptism by the pastor at the church, or an elder, as the case may be, if they're prepared and trained to do so, and that they've gone through that preparation process and that that clearance has been passed then on to the, the youth director. Yes, I've cleared her. She's ready for baptism. You go ahead and baptize her. Now, occasionally, this situation will happen. We've had a couple of these things happen in Pathfinder Camperees and, and some of these kinds of things where a young person has been preparing for baptism, but some unusual circumstance leads them to want to make a, uh, a commitment at that particular place, and there's never going to be that opportunity again. And the, the youth director, because he's an ordained minister, will clear them for baptism, but do so in cooperation with the pastor and work that process through and then and do that. So there are unusual circumstances, but it's a cooperative process. Good question. We had an unusual one. We had a, a young man wanted to be baptized while he was on a mission trip mm -hmm. in Mexico. Mm -hmm. So the pastor that was there wasn't our pastor. Right. So he called them and said, is it okay to baptize this guy? And his, his 
We said yes, you know, illegally. And uh, so then when it came back, and that's the beauty of it. There was cooperative there, co cooperation there, and they, they worked together to be able to accomplish that. So I'm sharing all of this because I want you to know how your church works. And there are circumstances, unusual circumstances, that come in along the way. But we, uh, you want to know how that process works and the kinds of things that you might be able to do. Because occasionally, you know, what happens if something like that came up and your pastor's on vacation and not reachable by phone? But then you know what that there are sometimes exceptions to that. And the real key ingredient for you is how much do you know for sure and a training do you have to be able to work through that process. And if you have any question at all, call the Michigan Conference Ministerial Director or his associate. Do you know who they are? Okay. And if you can't get them, get a hold of the conference secretary or the conference president, and you're usually going to get one of the four there. Actually, there are five of us because Daniel Scaroni is also an associate in the ministerial department. So we can help you with that process, and if you get stuck in something like that, call and ask, and we'll give you some guidance through that process. Jim? Can I reinforce the value of what you said there about making sure people are not baptized prematurely? I had one dear friend who, in that conference where he was at, he was baptized while he was still smoking, and and uh, he has never had the victory because, after all, he was already in. He's never been given that victory, and he, before baptism, if he had felt there was a need to move, now. He's not going to give victory. We're robbing people of victories in their lives when we read that You know, um, I hope that got on the recording because that testimony is so vital to this. I don't want you to think that somehow you're manipulating people and managing them. But the truth of the matter is baptism is a symbol of death to sin, right? But if the person is smoking, is smoking a sin? Yes. Is smoking a sin? Yes. Is smoking a sin? No. Yes. <laughs> Why? Because it's a violation of the, of the principle of, of the way I treat my body. And God doesn't want me to be doing that. So smoking is a sin in, the, in that sense. Now, I don't want to, you know, you know what I'm trying to say here and the point that I'm making. You want that person to have victory before they're buried. Because otherwise, our theology is, and I'm not talking about, I'm not talking about the fact that they've got to be perfect before they're baptized. That's not what are we talking about. But you're burying that sin, but they're still struggling with an obvious public sin that you know about. And they are baptized. It's, it's a defeating of what, Jesus, what Paul said, you are baptized in Romans chapter 6, and you are being buried as Jesus was, and, and you're burying those sins behind you. And, and it has a psychological impact, and, and the point that he made is exactly that. They, they are baptized, they're now in the system, so to speak, and they don't have any motivation to do that. They should have the motivation and they still need to be worked with. And there's another way to re-motivate that process. And this is what I would do in that situation. And that is if they continue to, to live that way, I disfellowship them. Do you understand what I mean by that? You, I'm speaking bluntly. 
and we don't like to use that term quite as much disfellowship, but we would, we would take them out of membership because of the fact that they have not given their lives over the Lord and they're allowing the devil to have the victory in their lives in a very public way, and, and that's self-defeating. So don't get, don't get ahead of yourselves in doing that. All right, I got to keep going because I got several other services I want to run through, and I know they're on your sheet, and that'll help you, but I want to make sure we keep up with that. All right, um, some performing of the baptism, uh, of course, is by a more immersion. Uh, there's a declaration that is made. Uh, you aren't going to be called upon to do that, but just so that you have an understanding of, of what it is, you know, you've seen your pastor uh, raise their hand at the baptism and say, I now baptize you in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Ghost, or some uh, similar variation of that, and... Uh, and then when you lower a person in the water, you want to do so gently and carefully. Um, some of the challenges, of course, I heard recently of someone who was like 500 pounds and wanted to be baptized. Fortunately, water helps, but it doesn't solve it entirely. And one of the things that you can do, uh, um, and, and one pastor was telling me the story, he said there were a couple of people that weight, and when it came to his turn to baptize that individual, and they, you know, you, that's a time when you want somebody to help you, uh, physically help you with that process. But one of the things you want people to do is just bend their knees. They don't have to lay back like this. You can, you know, the idea is immersion. It doesn't mean you can't go straight down. And that's often the simplest and the safest way for people that have injuries or other issues that you're dealing with. And you want to make sure that you, you take care of that and pastors can work with that accordingly. And by the way, when I said that an ordained pastor is doing that baptism, one of the things we encourage pastors to do when questions come up of, let's say Bob is, is studying with somebody and, and they've been really good friends with that. He's an elder in the church. He's the head elder in the church. And th this question does come to us. And can he baptize this person because he, you know, he's done all of this? And our answer is, no, we still want the ordained pastor to do that, but that doesn't mean you can't be in the baptistry with him and participating in that process. The pastor is the one that's doing the lowering, but I would, have, I would be standing at the other end and, and catching that person as they come down and help the pastor lift them back up. That's perfectly legitimate, and, uh, and that, that kind of situation is done uh, um, uh, frequently. Okay? Um, Realize that some people are afraid of water, and if you are not aware of this, never handle a microphone when you're in the baptistry. Uh, we've had some really tragic circumstances. Uh, my wife uh, reminds me of a story that she was aware of. Uh, a, ba a pastor in um, New Orleans uh, was doing a baptism uh, one day, and he grabbed the microphone and was electrocuted in front of the congregation. And I don't know what happened to the to the person who was in the pool at the same time, unless he, the person wasn't in the, in the baptistry at, the, at that time. But wired microphones are very dangerous, and, and pastors have been killed with them. So you just, you know, when I see somebody coming in with a mic, I say, get that thing away from me. <laughs> I don't want that anywhere around me. Now, I've never verified this, but I have seen pastors hold on to wi wireless mics, and I don't think we're dealing with the same circumstance with that. But I'm still uncomfortable with that. I just, you know what? Water and electricity do not make a good combination. And you don't want any uh, surprises in that. So make sure that that doesn't happen and that your, your baptistry has a good uh, arrangement so you don't have to deal with some of those kinds of things. Just, just to follow up 
quite hard to have to turn a microphone is hanging from above, so you can't even reach it. That's one of the best scenarios where they where you got the right kind of a microphone that can pick up the the thing and, and it's done that way. That's a good way to handle it and a very good way. Now after the baptism, you want this is a good time to invite other people to make a decision who have not yet made a decision. I saw this played out in my home church just a few weeks ago. And neat story. How many of you heard Elder Wes Pepper's um, interview a fellow up at uh, up here at camp meeting just a little while ago? He told a little bit about that story. Well, he, what he didn't tell you is the decision that that man and his, uh, I think his son or nephew or son and nephew made that Sabbath was right after a baptism. And he called, from the baptistry, he called for a decision and said, you know, maybe there's some people that need to make that decision. And I'm sitting like three or four pews behind these folk, and so I didn't know what the story was, because I, you know, I'm a visitor in my own home church. But I happened to be there that Sabbath, and those three people stood up. The wife didn't stand, she wasn't quite ready for that yet, but those three stood up, indicating that they were uh, ready to make that decision. That was after baptism, and, and that's a great thing to do. But you also want to have, some, this is a special opportunity for these, these folk. And if, you, if it is right in the middle of a church service and you are moving on to the sermon and so on, at the end of the sermon and the end of the church service, invite them to come to the front. Welcome them to the church family. Give them a bouquet of flowers or a rose or, or something. Give them uh, uh, some uh, memento of the experience. Uh, we, we have a book, a welcome to the family book that we encourage people to to uh, be given after baptism and, and you can put it out in the foyer. I see this being done a lot more these days where people sign it and welcome them in the church. It's a momentum for them to take back. I've seen people taking pictures of the baptism and they got this technology out there today where you can make a book out of that and give it to people and, and it's a really neat thing. I've had privilege of doing a couple baptisms in the last uh, few years of some uh, friends that my wife and, and I studied with and we have a friend who's a photographer and she came and took those pictures and then she made a book for those individuals and gave it to them. Just make it a special event for them. Now, if you're baptizing 100 a day, uh, 100 a Sabbath, and, and that's a little challenging to be able to do all that, we understand. I don't think you're having that problem yet. That may yet come. All right, any other questions on baptism before I move on to some of these other things that I'm going to go by a lot more quickly? All right, let's talk about child dedications. This isn't even something that's uh, uh, spoken of in the New Testament, but Jesus did minister to the children, didn't he? And he welcomed the children to him. And in the Seventh-day Adventist Church, we do child dedications. When we do them, we tell people, you know, we don't believe in child infant baptism, but we do believe in uh, committing a child to, uh, uh, to Jesus. And this is similar to what in the New Testament where Jesus was brought to the temple, okay? It's a similar kind of uh, a situation there and, um, and how Jesus also himself as an adult related to children. There are four basic purposes to thank God for the miracle of birth. Number two, to, uh, to arrange a covenant with the parents and the family in the raising of the child to love Jesus. This is not so much a, this is not, not so much, this is not saying this child is now going to be a minister and we're, no, this is a commitment of the parents to the task of raising that child. 
Some churches that have schools will bring their teachers into the situation after the dedication and give them a certificate, you know, like one free month's tuition or, or something like that, that when the child's old enough to go to school, that they're encouraged to come to the Christian school and the Adventist school and, you know, be a part of that. I mean, it's that support system that's there uh, to committing the congregation to that support of the family and blessing the child and dedicating them to, uh, to God. Um, and many a child that was dedicated started to wander away, was reminded by, about their dedication, and it's led them back to Jesus. And uh, so it's a wonderful thing. Um, sometimes some churches will plan these once a quarter and then invite people to come. Other times <laughs> parents will come, approach the pastor and ask them to uh, have that, uh, that service there. And the service itself is, how many of you have seen a child dedication? Okay, you've all seen one. You have a little bit of an idea of what's done. The parents are called forward. There might be a brief uh, homily. You know what we mean by homily. It's a little brief sermonette or a brief uh, um, uh, uh, reflection on the Word of God, a prayer, and then uh, with the baby. Uh, uh, sometimes it's child dedication. No, it's not a baby. Sometimes it's a child. Uh, when parents have come into the church and they've got small children, and they uh, see this and they say, look, I want my child dedicated. And so sometimes it's a three or a four-year-old or even a six or a seven-year-old child that does happen. And it's not a baby dedication, it's a child dedication. And that's why we call it that, so we don't get the wrong idea in relationship to that. All right, uh, usually it's done by the pastor. There's nothing that says that an elder can't do that if it's an appropriate situation. But most of the time it's the pastor doing that. And uh, it's, it's not one of those kinds of things that has to be an ordained minister to do. Baptism, yes, but not this. Yes? Many years ago, Pastor, my, my daughter wanted to uh, dedicate her, her firstborn, and uh, the pastor asked me if I would like to be involved in that. Mm -hmm. And so he let out, and of course, he asked me to have prayer. I don't even remember, it's been 25 years ago yeah. that happened. Uh, that uh, was a real eye-opening experience when you're involved in a child dedication yourself. Mm -hmm. that's, that's, that's neat. Yes. That's neat. Yeah, absolutely. Those kinds of things happen. And, and uh, you know, if you got your ideas of the kinds of things that could happen and you had a grandchild that was being dedicated and you wanted to participate, you could talk to the pastor and, and work all, uh, all of that out. Let's talk about church dedications. I'm just going through some of the kinds of services you might not have participated in. Church dedications are rare because once a church is dedicated, then it probably isn't going to be dedicated again. And so, uh, but you know, you might have a church, a new building has been built or it's been built a number of years ago and they paid off the mortgage and they want to have the dedication. And so we don't dedicate churches that are in debt. We wait until the churches are out debt free and then we, uh, those churches are dedicated, but they will want the pastors will want the assistance of elders in planning the program and accomplishing that and outlining the service order. Uh, there's no set way to do that. There are some suggestions in your uh, your handbook, your elders handbook. Uh, but some of the things that are included is a history of the church, 
Now, how many of you have ever been to a church dedication or participated in one? Okay, so most of you have seen that and have some idea, but those of you who haven't, this gives you a little bit of a perspective. There's going to be a reading of Scripture. There's going to be an act of dedication. If this is a case where, um, where there's a mortgage that's being, uh, being retired, uh, that mortgage often is burned uh, symbolically, if not physically. You want to be careful when you have a fire in the church. <laughs> that you have a good way of accomplishing that task, but uh, burning the, the mortgage, and it's an opportunity for the church to celebrate what God has done and accomplish that, and it might be the opening of a new church that you know, was built, and, and, and some, sometimes the churches are built and, uh, and, and all of it done debt-free, and that's a wonderful thing when that can happen, um, but it takes a lot of money to build a church today, but that's a, a church service there, and elders should be involved in that process as well. Let's talk about communion, which is a very common service in the church that you've all, unless you're a brand new elder or not an elder yet, and, uh, and all, but you've participated in it if you've been an elder or a deacon. And uh, the ordained minister is the one who leads out in that. There can be exceptions to that where a head elder can participate in that or should, should, should say lead out in that if there's an unusual situation, and, and it can happen. And, uh, and, and, and that can be done. But we prefer that the ordained minister lead out in that. That, again, just for the sake of continuity and, and keeping things moving ahead. We want to find a balance between uh, churches being able to accomplish um, and not, not being hovered over by a pastor, but at the same time being supervised by the pastor and maintaining uh, the standards and the direction. You know, you all are faithful servants of the Lord. You love the Lord. You want to serve Him. But we want to make sure that we have a, a good process going on and the ordained pastors are set aside for that purpose. But in some circumstances, it is appropriate for uh, an elder and, and, and specifically the head elder. That's the one that we would want to be leading out in that service if that were the right place. It's a time for the renewing of relationships. It's a time for uh, the church to celebrate together. By the way, did I see a hand going up here? I'll be right with you. Um, it should be about once a quarter. Now, I had a situation I don't want to describe too much, but some time ago we had a pastor, and, um, and that pastor uh, uh, left his church, and he went on to something else. And when we came in behind the pastor and, and talked to the church family, uh, we usually meet with the elders uh, when we're looking toward bringing a new pastor. And, and they told us that the pastor didn't do communion at all. And the first thing I said is like, why didn't you call me? I mean, you know, the pastor was there for several years. And they had no communion service. They might have had one or whatever, but he didn't have to do what he said. And what, I mean, I would certainly have corrected that pretty quickly. Um, so I want to make sure you as an elder know what the, the say. Normally it's once a quarter and works on that basis. All right, Mike. So in the absence of a pastor, let's say your pastor's moving on, you don't have a pastor, contact the conference to get someone to do the... That's the kind of circum. That's the perfect kind of circumstance where we might say the head elder can go ahead and do that, but we might say also, look, I've got a, an ordained pastor close by, and I'm going to uh, make arrangements for doing that, um, and and we will be practical. 
but also go to the highest step, uh, highest, I don't want to say level, but the, the highest standard, maintain the highest standard that we are able to do in that situation, okay? Uh, <laughs> since, since you know you could be facing that kind of situation, you, it's a good question to ask, but you're also close enough where there are enough ministers around that usually we can uh, accomplish that. And, and in, uh, I try to keep my schedule somewhat free so that I can help to try to participate in those kinds of situations. And I'm finding that they pop up more than I thought they ever would, so it's, it's there. The, um, the participants in your ordination service uh, in, in leading it are your elders, your deacons, and your deaconesses. Uh, since you've all participated, you've seen a communion service, you know how one is done. I really encourage you to practice. A lot of people get lazy about that, but you know you only do it once a quarter. And, and coming together and practicing, and this is what I tell my, my leaders when I do a, 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 a communion service. I say the reason that we practice is because we want to, want to do everything smoothly, not to draw attention to ourselves, but so that the attention is not drawn to ourselves. And we start stumbling around and don't know what we're doing. Is that directing attention to Jesus or to us? It's directing attention to us and our bumbling. But we should be doing the best that we can for Jesus. And that's why we should get together and practice so that we know what to do. I don't care how many times you've done it. It's a good thing to be able to do it. And if your church is, is growing and all, you might have some new people that are learning how to participate. And that needs to be part of that process. So make sure you practice. Who can participate in a service? Anybody can participate in a communion service if they have a faith in Jesus Christ. All right, and that's one of the things we say to people before a communion service is that Seventh-day Adventists believe in open communion. You do not have to be a Seventh-day Adventist to participate in communion, but you do need to be a believer. You need, do need to have surrendered your life to Jesus Christ and believe in Him if you're going to participate in communion. Otherwise, you're doing so unworthily. Um, there's a sermon, there's a foot washing service, um, and then there's the Lord's Supper part of that, sermon or even sermonette. And then at the end of the service, you're singing a song and, uh, and you're dismissing the people. A lot of churches will take up a benevolent offering at the, at the end as people are leaving. But every church has a little bit of a different tradition in regard to that, and that's fine. Look at your church, uh, hand, I mean your elder's handbook, and work through some of that. Don't forget those that are unable to attend that are shut-ins. And when I raised my, uh, I had you raise hands about that, I got the impression that some of your churches may not be doing that. And if that's the case, um, step it up a little bit and make sure that your shut-ins are receiving communion every time you have communion, um, you know, if at all possible. Uh, if there's a reason why they can't, then you've got to work through that. But make sure that that uh, service is being provided for people um, because they really want it and, and they need it. Okay. I took it to a nursing home to a member who was not able to attend, and her daughter was not, a, she's a church member, but not attending regularly. She happened to be there, mm -hmm. and that's, that communion service was a great blessing, and I think it was uh, beneficial not only to the person I went to, but the person I, the unintended attendee. What a wonderful story because it, it's talking about when you're serving people and you're caring about them, it also sometimes gives you opportunity for connections with people like that who may be kind of on the edge 
um, or not on, on at all and they're impressed and encouraged with it. So that's wonderful. Great. Just to tag on to that, our many times this might be the only time, it, it's almost like an intentional quarterly visit to a shut-in that we may have neglected. Exactly. So it almost keeps us on. Absolutely. Point well made. That is giving you an opportunity to make sure that you've got some regular contact with those people, repeating it for the, for the, for the uh, tape here. Yes, please. Are elders qualified to do that? Yes. And we ask elders to do that. But I would also ask you to do one other thing. Be inclusive of your deacons and your deaconesses. Don't just go by yourself. Bring a deacon with you or a deaconess with you as the case may appropriately be. And again, no, you know, don't get the deaconess if you're not married in your car with you and all that kind of thing. But I'm just saying get people to participate in that because I've told the deacons and deaconesses about participating in that. So I want to make sure the elders are including them in that process as well. They should be included in that also. Okay, one more hand and then I got to scoot. Abortion when you go to a shut-in is not mandatory at all. You don't do that. You just give them the bread and wine and uh, have prayer with them. Talk with them any concerns that they might have. It's not mandatory, but it is in their times when it's appropriate in the right circumstances. But if your opportunity to take communion to a shut-in is just you because of circumstances, and you're going to a lady in the nursing home, you're not washing her feet. Okay, and, uh, and, and you're not doing it in that kind of a circumstance and, uh, and, and all. Now, I've seen some people wash people's hands in relationship to that. That's kind of an interesting thought. But look at the church handbook, the handbook and, and kind of sort through that. But thank you for bringing it up because that is an important point. It's not mandatory in that circumstance you're bringing communion to them. There are some of these little nuances, and uh, it's good to be aware of them. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on groundbreaking. Most of you are never going to participate in a groundbreaking, but you can look at this. One just point, it's not a Sabbath service. This is not something you do on Sabbath. It's appropriate for Sunday or some other day of the week, as the case may be, and there might be some preparation of the site and some of the other kinds of things and a service that might be there. Now, here's one you might never have heard of, a house dedication. Anybody ever heard of a house dedication? I have not had many calls for that as a pastor, but I've had one or two, and I've got to tell you, honestly, it almost threw me when I started thinking about it, and I started going through this, all right, now wait a minute, is this a Catholic thing, or is this a, an Adventist thing, do we do this kind of stuff? And yeah, this, this, it's, a, it's appropriate for us to do that, and it, it can be a testimony type thing as well. Um, the purpose is... Uh, uh, the dedication, uh, um, in some cultures, that's more important than others. And sometimes those cultures spill over into our own country, and we get some of those kinds of things as well. So there might be an op opportunity there. Uh, you notice that if somebody you know, pays off the mortgage, they want, might want to thank the Lord for that and, and so on. You know what? It's wonderful to praise the Lord for His blessings and what He does. And I, I think in a lot of ways we don't do enough of it. <laughs> But that's here. I wanted you to be aware of it. You don't have to be an ordained minister to do it and, uh, and so on. It's, a, it's a, just that kind of a, a service. All right, I saw two hands. Uh, let's be brief because I'm going to get on. To, I've got 20 slides yet to go. Interesting point on this line. I have a friend who's a truck driver. Mm -hmm. He's a truck. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, he probably lives in that more than he does his house. 
<laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. And and I you know I these truck drivers. I don't know. Are you any truck drivers in here? Yeah, you're truck drivers. Um, truck drivers are, are are a lot of truck drivers are out there on the road, and they're great witnesses for the Lord. And they live in the truck. And they live in the truck. All right, Tom. I just hit my thought is, is that if I would have done that when I came into my neighborhood and invited my neighbors to my house dedication, you're establishing for me and my house yeah. for the Lord. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know what? Sometimes we just need to think outside the box and recognize that opportunity. So um, anyway, I, it's in your notes, and I'm going to keep moving on here. Funerals. You do not, in most cases, I don't know of any place where you have to be licensed to, uh, to conduct a funeral uh, as a, as, in a ministerial capacity. I'm not talking about being a funeral director. You've got to be licensed to do that in the state of Michigan. But uh, you don't have to be licensed to do the uh, spiritual part of a uh, funeral service. And I know of elders that have done that. Um, elders have, you know, say, please come, get us a pastor. We haven't had a pastor for a while. I've done four funerals and I'm tired. <laughs> and uh, so that happens in churches when they don't have pastors and elders can do that and work through that. Uh, my suggestion, if you've got an elder's handbook, there are suggestions in there, there are ideas there of what you may be able to do. Uh, you probably, if you've been part of your community for any length of time, you know the, the culture of your people around you and some of the things that you, that you do. But just a couple quick pointers. Um, one of them is that a brief outline is a, a prayer at the beginning, um, maybe a, a scripture reading, uh, a, a summary of the person's life, a life sketch is what I call it, is often called a eulogy in more uh, general terms, maybe a special music, a brief sermonette, and then, uh, uh, and then a closing prayer. That's usually what the, the service uh, contains in it. And I warn funeral directors when I do funerals, I'm saying I've caught more than one funeral director thinking that preacher's going to be going on for an hour and I can go out and have coffee somewhere and, and, and whatever and then come back. Um, I usually do a short sermonette, um, anywhere from five to ten minutes. I don't try to make it a long, drawn-out thing. And most of the time, families are very appreciative of that. Don't let families talk you into preaching the whole three angels' messages during that uh, sermon. That's not an appropriate time to be doing that. I didn't say we can't be faithful to what we believe, and you certainly want to do that, but this isn't the time to be telling people that uh, they're going to hell if they don't keep the Sabbath and those kinds of things. That's not how you do that kind of, that kind of work. But when you get done with the service, then let the funeral director take over, and the funeral director will manage that part of it, and will tell you where you need to be and so on. If the funeral director tells you that you need to be, you know, the head of the casket is over here, that's your clue that that's where you're supposed to be standing. In Michigan culture, the pastor stands, uh, or the, the officiating minister, or the officiating whoever, stands at the head of the, of the casket when the casket is wheeled out, and when it's at the graveside, and that's usually, well, because you can't always tell where the head is when you get to the graveside, and the funeral director will usually tell you that the head is over here. And what they're telling you is, that that's where you need to be standing, okay? All right, I'll keep going here. Uh, relationship to that, uh, funerals, uh, visiting with the family beforehand, 
uh, funeral dinners afterwards. If you're doing a funeral and coordinating a funeral because you don't have a pastor and, and you're doing that, make sure that some of the needs of that family are being met. If they're members of the church and they want to have a dinner afterwards, make sure that those things are being arranged and, and all, especially the head elder, work with your deacons, your deaconesses and, and, have, and working that through. And my suggestion is that you have a plan ahead of time about how you're going to coordinate all of that and how you're going to do that kind of thing. Um, you are giving uh, support to the church, and that's part of what I was just talking about there. Um, new parish induction. Uh, this is a time when you're just encouraging and welcoming a pastor in. And uh, then um, what we do in the Michigan Conference is what's on the next slide, and that's a pastoral installation service. Uh, we've been doing this pretty consistently now. My wife, bless her heart, uh, worked hard on, on coming up with a new uh, liturgy. You know what I mean by liturgy? A little written service that outlines some of the things that we do. And one of us will come from the conference, one of four or five of us, and we will come and introduce the pastor and have this brief service. How many of you have had a pastor installed in the last three or four years? Okay, so some of you know what, what that's all about. And we come and we uh, go through this little service. We take the church members through it. It's a commitment of the pastor and his wife to the, uh, to the ministry that, uh, that they're coming to here. And it's also a commitment of the congregation to unite together in this work that's been given. It's a nice little service. And then we have a, a prayer, a uniting prayer together. We ask people to come and gather around the pastor and his wife. And, and we have that prayer and uh, it's, a, it's a wonderful little uh, service. It's just a time to transition from a previous pastorate into a new pastorate and recognize that God's in charge of our church and God's in charge of this pastor's ministry, and that's what's happening. So that's what this is all talking about here. Um, I don't know that we do it quite with some of these details, but uh, every place is a little different in terms of what we do. I want to talk about prayer for the sick. Prayer for the sick is a very important part of the service. How many of you have not participated in an ordinary uh, prayer uh, service for the sick, an anointing service for the sick? So most of you have, right? Most of you have. Um, a couple key points in terms of where it's held. Sometimes it's held in a hospital. Sometimes it's held at the home. Who attends that service? It should not just be anybody and everybody. This is a service uh, for that particular person. Uh, we do allow them to invite some people, but they want to invite people that they know are committed Christians who love the Lord and who have faith in Jesus, that faith can, that that, that person can be healed. Uh, if, they, if you don't have faith, uh, you know, the Bible makes it clear, you don't have faith, you shouldn't be the one praying for, for that, uh, that healing and that circumstance. So you want to prepare the recipient for receiving the service. I ask that an individual is going to be anointed for prayer I, uh, for, for, uh, with prayer for, for uh, their illness. I ask them to study a little chapter in the book, Ministry of Healing, prayer, entitled Prayer for the Sick. Because Ellen White has some very pointed counsel in relationship to what that person needs to do to prepare their heart and life for that service before it takes place. And um, what we're doing is we're encouraging that person to examine their life before uh, that anointing service. And then the service itself is very brief. Uh, usually it's an, the elders, maybe a minister and participating. If you don't have a, a minister there, I know of elders have done this and it's great. Elders can do that because uh, you can't always wait for a minister to get there. It's not always time for that to happen in some circumstances. And it's a very brief service. Um, I usually start with a prayer 
and then uh, have a little testimony time, uh, testifying, testifying to what God has done and how He's shown faith, uh, uh, He's shown uh, faith, Himself faithful in these kinds of circumstances. And then there's an anointing prayer with one individual putting a little olive oil with finger with the fingertips on the forehead of that individual, and I have Kleenex there so a person can wipe their their forehead afterwards and and so on. And then. Um, after that prayer service, I get up and leave. I tell them ahead of time, we're walking out of here right now. We're leaving. We're done. We won't have any chit-chat afterwards. Sacred service, and we won't be doing anything along that line. I'm taking a little longer, Daniel, this time just because I, I want to get through this, this section, and I'm almost done. Um, weddings, you don't do weddings, okay? And uh, But you might be called upon to participate in one, and your church may do a wedding there and, and have uh, some participation. So it's nice to have a little bit of an idea of what's going on here. There are some circumstances that prevent a pastor from doing a wedding. Elders, if a pastor makes a decision that he cannot do that wedding, please support your pastor. Please support your pastor. Because the pastor decides that, it's because there's something that is inappropriate going on and it wouldn't be appropriate for him to do that. Most common is an Adventist being married to a non-Adventist. Seventh-day Adventist minister cannot ethically do that. And if it happens to be your child or the child of your grandson, granddaughter or your daughter or whatever, support your pastor because the pastor is doing what's ethically right or some leader in your church, support them, a pastor, in making that decision because there are times when that is inappropriate to be done. The pastor has the final say in that, um, and uh, there are other circumstances there. I will say only this about weddings. You should have a wedding policy for your church. How many have a wedding, written wedding policy for your church? Okay? If you don't have one, you need to have one. And I'm telling you why you need to have one. Number one, you need to have one because you, if you have a wedding in your church and you're asked to do a wedding that you cannot support, you need to have it in writing in your church that you cannot support that church. And do you know what I'm talking about? Yes. If you haven't been reading the news lately, you might want to read it and get up to date with what's going on out there. Now, there's another reason for it besides those kinds of circumstances. And if I'm not being clear, I'm trying to be a little vague for a reason because I'm videotaping this and I don't want it to get out onto the Internet and all that kind of thing. But the other issue is you sometimes people want to come and rent your church and they want to bring alcohol, they want to bring unclean foods, they want to do all those kinds of things, and our churches are not for that. So there need to be some written guidelines and policies that you've established for it. So if your church doesn't have a wedding policy, go to your pastor and talk to them about it. And if they don't believe there's a need for that, have them call me. If they agree with it, <coughs> then go ahead and start working through that process with your board. It's a spiritual event. It's a spiritual process. And it's a spiritual commitment. All right. I think I'm going to have to stop here. I will bring, I'll start with this tomorrow. I'll start in this area. Um, you already got the notes on it. I'll pick up from here and then I'll move on to the other areas because I want to spend a little bit uh, heavier time with the uh, preaching uh, part of this because I think that's an important part. So we'll pick that up tomorrow. Let's have a prayer as we conclude.
Lord, as we end our time today, we ask that you will continue to help us to be the leaders that you want us to be. Being elders means also being responsible. The things we've talked about today have helped us to understand how critical those uh, factors are in our lives and in our ministries, in our service. As we apply these to our churches and the work you've given us to do, help us to be faithful to you in all things. And we thank you for hearing our prayer today. As we go our way, watch over us and give us a good rest of this day. In Jesus' name, amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.